Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with our amazing colleague, Dr. Chelsea Stone, to speak about headaches and migraines. Dr. Stone is a board-certified neurologist with specialty in headache medicine. She holds a master's degree in psychology, completed her neurology residency at Loma Linda University Medical Center, and fellowship in headache medicine at University of Southern California, Los Angeles, where she now serves as full-time faculty. Chelsea understands the unique challenges of chronic pain and takes a collaborative and multidisciplinary approach to patient care with special interest in treating pregnant and lactating women. In addition to patient care, she's very passionate about physician well-being and serves as Assistant Program Director of Wellness for the Neurology Residency Program at USC and as the well-being champion for the Keck Neurology Department. We explored the science, the symptoms, and solutions of headaches and migraines. But before we jump into the episode, I wanted to take a few moments to thank you for listening to our conversations and for your incredible feedback. To those of you who took the time to share your reviews on Apple Podcast, we really appreciate it. It means a lot to us because that seems to be the most likely way for others to find the podcast and use this information. So thank you for being a part of our community and helping us spread evidence-based information about brain health. If you're interested in learning more about evidence-based neurology and brain health in an online community, check out our Neuro Academy platform. We have daily posts, discussions, interest clubs, live cooking and Q&A sessions, courses with CE, CME credits, and so much more. Visit neuroacademy.com to learn more. Okay, now let's jump into the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Chelsea, I am so grateful to you that you took this time to come and speak with us about a topic that you are an expert in, and you've always been very passionate about the genetics. It's an honor to be here. This is really exciting for me. So Chelsea, tell us about your work <clears throat> at USC. Yeah, so I am a headache specialist. So I'm working with um, fellows, but also working with residents, teaching them about headache. And we get a variety of really complex headache patients at USC. I mean, sometimes they just don't even fit a particular category, um, and so I also um, do some work at the county, working with residents um, as an attending on general neurology. But really, the vast majority of what I do is work with headache patients. Amazing, amazing. And it's uh, wonderful that you're working at a university-based hospital system because um, you know, one of the things that Dean and I always tell patients is like, try to go to a university-based hospital system for your care because they always have that comprehensive care system where, say, for example, if somebody goes there for neuromuscular problems, you don't just see a neurologist. You see a super specialist in that field. You also have access to PT or physical therapy, occupational therapy, to psychologists, to other, you know, um, ancillary groups that can enhance your experience and can help you as well. But I love the fact that you work in the county too, because it, correct me if I'm wrong, the people that come to the hospital and the people who are actually in the county and don't not necessarily have access to come to the hospital are very different, aren't they? They're very different. They're very different. So when I see patients at USC, most of those patients, um, although we do see some patients with um, not very good insurance, but we only get to see them one time. Um, and that's really <coughs> hard for me because I want to see them all the way through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the patients we see at Keck, we can get them involved in our multidisciplinary program very easily. 
We get them in with OT, PT, pain psychology, everything that you just brought up. But when we see patients at the county level, it's really hard to get them those resources, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm one of the things I'm doing at the county level is we're actually doing headache groups to try and give some of the education that patients would get at Keck or um, other, you know, hospital-based systems, um, um, resources like physical therapy, occupational therapy, just giving them some of those tools that they may have not otherwise been able to receive just because of the sheer volume of patients at a county level. Yeah, yeah. Before, I, something that I want to, and I always am interested in this, is what makes people go in a given direction? What, and sometimes it's just life experiences, just accidental. We, we you know, um, stumble into something. But from the experience we had, as far as your passion for this field, um, I'm sure that there's a, another story to this. What, what brought you to this field? First, neurology and then to headache as a specialty. Sure. So that's um, truthfully a very difficult question for somebody like me because I'm very indecisive and I like a lot of different things. Um, and so actually when I was choosing a specialty, I really struggled. I, I went all over the map. I really enjoyed every single one of my rotations in medical school, every single one. And I could see myself in every single one. Um, so truthfully, I actually applied to two different specialties and just thought, okay, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Um, and so one of them was neurology and one was internal medicine. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful that I ended up in neurology. It's such a good fit for me. I have a background in psychology, both a, um, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. Um, and I found that that served me really well in neurology. Um, I have a passion on that mind-body connection. Um, and it served me really well uh, as a headache specialist, too, because there is so much of a comorbid um, a high rate of comorbidity with depression, anxiety, and other, um, you know, uh, mental health issues with, with migraine. Yeah. yeah. And I thought yeah, it's really served absolutely. me well. Yeah. I've always found, um, you know, as, as a neurology resident, I always found headaches a bit intimidating, um, intimidating in ways where, um, you know, you're dealing with a person who is just suffering tremendously. I mean, the, of course, I mean, most of these diseases are, are pretty bad, but having pain, you know, and dealing with pain day in and day out just completely changes your life and completely changes your perspective about yourself and about the world. And so I always took it very seriously, but I also have tremendous respect for people who deal with pain conditions on a day-to-day -day basis. It can be really hard. When, yeah, when we and, first married, um, Aisha and I, I, I still had some remnants of migraines, and I've, I've suffered from migraines most of my life. <clears throat> I have a family history of migraines. My uncles, who were both surgeons, had severe migraines, and I had migraines. And it was so bad that, uh, and, and, and the moment I would feel the pre-dorm, the, 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 the headache coming, it was a frightening experience because I knew what was about to come and I had to do whatever I could to stop it, but it, most of the time I wouldn't be able to. And I would have a migraine at least once a week, if not more. It was so debilitating that at the tail end of it, when I first got married with Aisha, there was one occasion when we were actually in, in this train station in, oh in DC <clears throat> and, um, and the headaches came on and they came on rapidly, the migraine. The one side of the head, 
uh, I, I started feeling these lights coming, the scintillating uh, lights, and I, I felt the nausea. I felt the light hurt, hurting me, the, the sound, the photophobia, so forth. And then all of a sudden, I was so debilitated that in the middle of this huge crowd, and she, she was like, wait a second, I'm married to this dysfunctional person. No, I was on the ground. I was on the ground and I didn't care who was around me or what was around me. A mind, thankfully, for the last 14, 15, no, actually 16 years now, I've had no migraines. It happened at the same time that I changed my lifestyle, diet. I had a terrible diet, let's just say that. And I, I went plant-based, but I never bring it up as a case because I hate when people bring anecdotes as a case uh, because one case doesn't mean it. Even if it's your own, even if you have a direct relationship, there are still not enough of a, a case to make. But uh, for me, it was, I remembered that dread. <clears throat> and I respect, um, I respect people that are going through it, but, uh, but even more people are, that are taking their time to treat people with migraines and other types of headaches. So I, I definitely um, respect what you do and, and, and as a, from a personal perspective. <clears throat> and there's a historical perspective in this. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots. Do you know about that story? No. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm probably going to get uh, uh, letters from Scotland or from a uh, family of uh, uh, Queen Mary uh, that uh, she had severe migraines. And whenever she had it, it was a bad day for the, for the, for the kingdom. What? Let's just say that. You <laughs> can look it up. But nonetheless, it's, it's a difficult, difficult situation to be in, um, be it migraines and other kind of uh, headaches. So having said that, so I, I just wanted to kind of give you a little perspective of what I've gone through and now where I am. When you are dealing with headaches, when somebody comes in with a headache, I would love for the, pop, for the general public to get an idea of how you think I'm going to approach this headache. What are the questions so they can start becoming more aware of it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and thank you so much for sharing your story. <clears throat> um, that's I don't usually hear people that get 15 or 16 years of headache relief. That's, that's great. Yeah. Um, so when I hear a patient, the first thing I, I want to know is, you know, how many headache days are you having in a month, right? Um, because that helps me identify, is this somebody that's having, you know, episodic headaches um, or chronic headaches? Um, you know, anybody that has 15 headache days or more a month, it, it, it's chronic. Yeah. Um, and then I also want to know, have you had a period of time where you had fewer headache days? Is there a seasonal component? Um, because that leads us one direction. Um, is there a positional component? And then I also want to know, am I hearing any red flags, right? So first things first, is this your first headache of life or have you been having headaches for a long period of time? So the first thing I ask patients is, you know, when was the first time you had a headache? And probably 50%, and at least the data supports this as well, have had their first, in terms of migraine, before age 12. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of my patients are like, I don't remember even having, uh, not having headaches. I've had mm -hmm. them forever. Uh -huh. And many of them are trying to find what caused that to happen, right? Like, is there something they did? And so we go a little deeper and do you have family members with headaches? Um, and then has anything made it better? Anything made it worse? <clears throat> do you feel like you have any triggers? Um, and by the time people come to me being an academic center, they've usually tried a variety of different things. Well, they've seen other neurologists. They've <clears> had <throat> head imaging. Um, and many of them 
um, come in with the impression that maybe they just have what we call tension headaches. And later we realize that no, in fact, you have migraine or probable migraine, um, or you have um, some of these other headache disorders. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that that I, I kind of start a visit with. Um, there's just so much to find out about a particular patient, and everybody has such an interesting story. Yeah. And it really takes at least a good hour to get to know a story and, and mm-hmm. understand what kind of, of headache they headache type they have and how can we best go about treating it. I love the fact that uh, so much of our diagnosis in neurology comes from conversations and just, you know, a good history. And I remember Chelsea, I mean, just being your attending and us being in, you know, in, in, in um, neurology grand rounds, it's that history that matters the most and finding life patterns and uh, symptom patterns that tells us quite a lot. Um, I'm going to get a little specific now. So, uh, the word, the words headache and migraine are used interchangeably, right? I mean, it's very common for people to say, Oh, I have a migraine. And then when we see them in the neurology clinic, it's not necessarily a migraine. It's a different type of a headache. Um, could you, um, could you give us the difference between the two or maybe just kind of give us like an idea of how headaches are all classified? Absolutely. So I think, um, this is a really good question and really important question because Oftentimes we'll ask, um, you know, somebody will tell like a coworker that they are having a migraine. And sometimes a coworker will say something like, that's okay, I get headaches too. And that's really hard for a migraineur to hear because it's not just a headache. Just as, as Dean was mentioning earlier, it's so much more than that. There is the premonitory symptoms um, that can last from hours to days prior to the actual headache onset for about... 30% of migraineurs, they can have an aura, you know, just as you were describing this scintillating uh, scotomata. I, I always have a hard time um, pronouncing it. Um, you know, you can see flashing lights, um, uh, 90% of the time they're visual. And then you get the headache part. And this is often after, you know, a couple days of having other symptoms like cognitive fatigue, um, cognitive uh, clouding, word-finding difficulty. There's a lot of yawning, increased urination. Um, people, um, as I mentioned, uh, fatigue. Um, there's just a, a nausea. People will have um, um, maybe some appetite of, changes. Yeah, a lot of GI changes too, right? Sometimes a people lot actually of GI get changes. diarrhea for some reason. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, some people have diarrhea. Um, a lot of my patients, and we hear this, you know, have um, migraine-induced gastroparesis, so they actually have a slowing down of their GI tract. Uh, there's just a variety of different symptoms that go with migraine that are so much more than just the headache itself. And for some people, it's actually more debilitating mm-hmm. than, than the actual headache. And, and uh, 80% of migraineurs will have that pr- uh, premonitory or prodrome prior to the onset of the headache. And then the headache itself will last, you know, four to 72 hours of untreated, can even go longer into something called status micronosis, which means that it lasts over 72 hours. And then after that, you can have a postrome where you feel tired after, after having this debilitating headache lasting 24 hours. It's just a very long process. And then in between these events, we have the interictal phase. So migraine is a syndrome. It's not just a headache. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that. That's amazing. <clears throat> um, and it's it's important for people to know that. And of course, it's important for people to see a neurologist and a specialist to help them differentiate between these because the treatments are very different, aren't they? Very different. Very different. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, headaches. Uh, just a general headache is often responsive to maybe NSAIDs. Um, you know, just over the counter medications. But people with migraine. Sometimes they're lucky and their headaches will respond to NSAIDs. Um, and by NSAIDs, I mean like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications mm-hmm. um, like ibuprofen or um, naproxen or t- even acetaminophen for some people. But when you have a migraine, um, it can oftentimes require more than, than that. Um, yeah. That being said, some people with migraine also just have basic headaches. That's That's part of the criteria for... Uh, migraine is you just have to have, um, like, for example, for chronic migraine, um, you have to have 15 headache days or more a month, only eight of which need to be classified as migraine. And so the diagnostic criteria for migraine um, is that, um, you know, it's often unilateral, throbbing, made worse by physical activity. Um, That's the pain component. And then the, um, there's associated symptoms, just kind of what we were discussing earlier, um, sensitivity to light, mm-hmm. uh, sensitivity to sound, nausea, and, um, or vomiting. Um, yeah. and you have to have either sensitivity to light and sound, or um, or you could just have nausea, and that's when you know it's m- migranous. So. Well, and so it's very common. It's, it's common for people to have migraines as well as other types of headaches, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we go any further, you you brought up this concept of first time headache versus a chronic headache, and and about three percent of population of the world to have chronic headaches, but fifty percent headaches have headaches in general, uh, from the latest WHO findings. But what's important is this uh, primary versus secondary, or a new headache. I'm I'm, I'm kind of mixing up these concepts a little bit, but the, the, your point is extremely important. For people to know that sometimes when you're having a headache for the first time, it could be something very important that you really need to get it checked out because it could be, and we'll get into what this could be, but it could be uh, telling of something much worse. So if you are you know, in your 30s, 40s, and for the first time you're having a severe headache, that's a completely different thing that must uh, you know, put up the red flags and get you moving to see a doctor as soon as possible because that's a completely different phenomenon. Having said that, what kind of statistics do we have around headaches? I mean, we know that it's one of the most common things that brings people to the emergency room, but can you give us some, uh, some numbers? Sure. So at least <clears throat> 1 billion people in the world suffer from migraine. 1.89 billion suffer from tension-type headache. 39 million in the U.S. And so one in four households is affected by migraine. Um, each year, there's 3.5 million visits to the ER for headache, most of which are due to primary headache types like this migraine, um, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, which we haven't touched upon yet, um, or tension-type headaches. Um, there's $20 billion um, spent on headaches every year in the U.S. Um, you know, that includes, obviously, people that are disabled, loss of revenue. Um, and then... Um, that's those are the statistics statistics I can think of. Mind yeah. blowing, yeah. mind blowing, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if if we could even bring a small debt into this um, 
massive uh, uh, problem for society. It will be so, so amazing, so remarkable. And we'll get into that as far as detecting it earlier, understanding it earlier, treating it earlier. All of these things are possibilities going forward. But um, yeah, so uh, as far as differences, uh, uh, genders, I mean, uh, as far as sex differences, cultural differences, age differences, what, what do we know about that? Yeah, so basically before puberty, um, boys and girls are affected differently. And then once puberty happens, it girls just female gender really takes off. And so about 18% of females um, are affected with migraine, whereas about 7 8% of men. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a three to one, about a three to one uh, ratio. Do we know why? I mean, we, is it a hormonal variable? Is it is it, uh, 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 what are the variables that usually uh, contribute to these different, uh, the, the difference? We do, um, we do think that it is because of, well, we know that estrogen in the menstrual cycle is a uh-huh. trigger. So we do think that the hormonal fluctuations um, are, play a big role. It, it, estrogen affects a, a number of different mechanisms with migraine. Um, yeah. So we found that there is an estrogen withdrawal hypothesis, which shows that, um, you know, in the late luteal phase, early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, um, estrogen and progesterone drop. And that's when a number of um, my patients all of a sudden get their their migraine. In fact, there's menstrual migraine is one of the types mm-hmm. that we see. Um, and yeah. so it, it starts a couple days before the menses and then um, about three days into menstruation. Um, your body migranous um, brain doesn't like to be fluctuating. It likes to be at, uh, constant. Um, yeah. Yeah. Homeostasis. I mean, that's, that's intriguing because um, so now that brings on the pregnancy com- question. We just did a session on uh, multiple sclerosis and some of the autoimmune diseases. And during pregnancy, things change. There is a uh, ebbing of the phenomenon of the uh, inflammatory process. That you just had a, a pregnancy, well, about a year ago or so, and, and so what what happens during pregnancy to to a headache? Uh, well, specifically in this case, we're talking about migraines, right? Right. What happens to migraines during pregnancy? It just kind of intrigued me to, uh, about that question. This is one of my favorite topics in in headache. Actually, I, in fact, I whenever there's a pregnant patient or a woman that wants to get pregnant or um, is postpartum, I ask the rest of the group to send them my way. This is my favorite um, group of patients to treat. Um, so during pregnancy, um, during the first trimester, there is, can be an uptick in headaches, right? As your hormones are changing rapidly. Um, and then once you hit the second and third trimester, we actually see improvement as the estrogen and progesterone level off. Mm-hmm. And so about 85% of women by the third trimester, those with migraine are, are doing much better. Um, wow. But we do see some other things with, with pregnancy. You are gaining weight rapidly, right? So there are some other conditions you're at increased risk for, like um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, because you do, so when, and there's some other things too that you need to consider. We were talking about secondary types of headache earlier, and pregnancy is one of those things that you need to consider. If somebody has a change in headache type, new onset headache during pregnancy, those patients really need to be imaged, right? Because you are at increased risk, given that you're hypercoagulable when you're yeah. pregnant, um, for things like venous sinus thrombosis, you know, blood clot in the venous system, 
um, or or strokes. These are these are things you really need to look into if you're pregnant. One statement that you said was um, most people start having headaches before the age of 12. So children do have headaches as well. Um, can you talk about that? Like children having headaches um, and how that should be dealt with and whether those are migraines and that's, it's something that's, you know, not as, as, as uh, dangerous or as ominous as the headaches in adults are concerned. How, how do you deal with that? That's a big question, and it's a very important question. So headaches in children are, are different uh, than, than adults, but in some ways they're the same. So headaches in children, they, they often experience premonitory symptoms. They'll have the yawning. They'll have increased urination. Um, they'll have fatigue. Sometimes, um, um, and they'll also have that post that we discussed. But migraine in children is often shorter, they usually, theirs usually last about two hours, and more often their headaches are bilateral mm -hmm. as compared oh, to wow. adults. Okay. Their migraines are bilateral. Yeah. Their migraines are often bilateral. <clears throat> okay. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the, just to kind of expand on that, initially, uh, migraine, and you can correct me on this, but the general concept was that it was unilateral or it's called hemicrania, one-sided, mm -hmm. but we, we know that about 45 to 50% are not one-sided, right? That's, that's right. That's right. It's, yeah. it's in the classification, but... Many of my patients report bilateral, but 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 with children, that's that's just generally speaking, we we know that they report that it's bilateral, but in reality, we see that that headaches in in adults are often bilateral as well. Yeah, I, sorry, go ahead. No, no. no uh, speaking of uh, children, one thing should be um, uh, should be in our list of things to worry about is if it's a new headache and it's pretty bad. Um, because children also have these, um, they can have brain-occupying tumors, um, uh, especially in the posterior fossa in the back of the yes. head. If there's altered mental state, if they are um, having difficulty walking, dizziness, uh, spitting sensation, any of those symptoms, anything, there should be a lower threshold of getting it checked uh, um, uh, because of those factors. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that we need to take headaches in children seriously. I think yeah. sometimes... Uh, people assume, oh, they're just trying to get out of something. And, and that's really not, you know, are they trying to get out of school, trying to go home? That's not really the case. You know, you really need to take these things seriously. And just as you said, you know, if, if they're reporting, you know, pain in the back of the head, are they having um, other focal neurological signs? You, it needs to be taken seriously. Absolutely. I think that's this is a good transition point to kind of give our audience a general yeah. idea of the major types of headaches. So if you could just kind of classify for everyone, what kind of headaches are there? Absolutely. So there are a lot of different kinds of headaches. <laughs> um, but, but the way I think about it is there's primary headaches, and that's headaches like migraine that we keep bringing up. Um, this other class of headaches called trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. Mm -hmm. um, trigeminal meaning... Um, you know, the trigeminal nerve, and it's often involving the ophthalmic branch and the V1 distribution, so near the eye, temporal region. Um, and then autonomic, there's a variety of autonomic features where patients will have, um, on the same side of their pain, they will have things like tearing, um, mm -hmm. their nose will run, they'll have facial flushing, um, eyelid edema, uh, you know, swelling of the eyelid, um, their pupils will get smaller on that same side, uh, drooping of the eyelid, um, their ear will feel full, 
Um, and sometimes with headaches such as cluster headache, which is a type of trigeminal autonomic cephalalgia, they will feel restless and agitated, which is different than migraine where often you feel fatigued. Yeah. Um, and cephalalgia means headache, you know, pain in the head. So that's another um, category of, of headaches. And there's several different kinds um, broken down there, but, but for brevity, I won't go into that too much right now, unless you want yeah. me to, which I'm happy to. Those are like the board questions of its last two <laughs> minutes. The, yeah, and they respond to in the medicine. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. And two of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias are, um, uh, uh, what, how do they put it? Um, absolutely responsive to endomethacin. Um, th that's, that's right. That is a board question. And uh, the other kind would be tension type headache, which we don't often see in our in our clinic, um, those are the three big categories. And then there's other primary um, types of headaches like hypnic headache or numular headache, which means coin-shaped um, yeah. primary stabbing headache. These are all primary type of, of headaches that, that we know about. Um, and then there's secondary headaches, which we've, we've talked about a little bit. Um, one headache type that I really like to bring up is one called medication overuse headache. This one doesn't require, you know, being taken to the ER. It's it's not something that requires urgent imaging. But but something I hear about often in, in clinic is that patients are taking what is called acute or abortive medications too much, right? Mm -hmm. So they're taking ibuprofen every day, Tylenol, um, opioids, um, or, you know, there's a class of medications for migraine called triptans. Mm -hmm. um, some of the patients <clears throat> will get upset that they only get nine tablets a month. Um, but that's because there's a, a high rate of medication overuse with, with something like triptans. Um, you know, butalbital, which is Fioraset Fior is another name for it. Um, that is one secondary cause of headache, and we see it all the time with migraine, and it makes it very difficult to treat migraine, actually. Um, there's some other types of um, – I, I listened to your uh, podcast on um, traumatic brain injury, and we have uh, – I see so many patients with post-traumatic headache that actually mm -hmm. look like migraine, but it was the result of TBI, right, of traumatic wow. brain injury. Um, I see that all the time I, um, in my clinic. And then um, other types of secondary headaches that we need to look into, we, there's a mnemonic called um, SNOOP, you know, where we like look, oh, are there systemic signs? Um, does the patient have fever? Because then we need to be concerned. Do you have, do they have meningitis? Do they have, you know, some other cause for their um, symptoms? Um, look at, you know, are they having neurological symptoms? Is there weakness mm -hmm. on one side? Um, are they having um, papilledema or, um, on you know, on physical exam um, or vision changes that aren't like or more of like what we would call negative symptoms where there's a loss of vision yeah. um, or um, is something to look into? What is the onset? So what we call thunderclap. So if somebody can clap their hands and, and all of a sudden it just goes from zero to 10, that needs urgent imaging, right? Because yeah. um, that's concerning for a bleed um, or a stroke, um, or there's some other conditions that, you know, like 
reversible cerebrovasoconstriction syndrome that can cause thunderclap headache. Um, older age, if somebody just started getting headaches and they're over age 50, that's a reason that you need to go seek care. There should be some imaging done. Um, and then you get to the P's, right? And we've already discussed pregnancy and postpartum mm-hmm. where, where somebody, um, you know, we really need to consider an MRI, um, a positional component. So does, does the headache get worse with bending over, um, with lying down? This could mean that there is something um, related to cerebro um, spinal fluid, like too much pressure, too low pressure. Requires further investigation. Um, is it precipitated by Valsalva? So, like if somebody's straining, um, um, you know, bending over, um, coughing, sneezing. Um, or dark bowel movements. Yeah. Bowel movements, exactly. Defecation. Then we, then that's another caught, you know, con- could uh, make us concerned for a secondary headache. Mm. Um, I think I hit them all. Not yeah, sure. no, 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 a lot of them. It's, there's a lot. Thank you. There's a lot. Thank yeah. you. No, but, but the, right. yeah. the, the, that's critical because for people to understand that these are all important things. And the, the first thing to distinguish are the urgent things. When it's the worst headache of your life, or when you describe this thunderclap, we, we, we talk about bleeds, aneurysms, um, you know, uh, significant trauma to, to the vasculature of the brain that, or meningi- that, that, that can bring this on. And those are the things that, that should be addressed immediately right. in the emergency room. Right, right. Um, and, and then, and then we, everybody knows about, well, everybody's heard about migraines, but they haven't heard about all these other things. For example, one of the things that you talked about, which is the cluster ha- headaches, which are significantly more common in men than women, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, about 40 times more common. And the, the quality is very different. Very different. Whereas in migraines, this throbbing, heavy feeling in the, uh, in, in the head or one side, with, with the cluster, it's almost like knife-like, like somebody's with a, you know, um, hitting back of your eye with a, with a pick for a pick fork or something of that nature, right? Yes, and, and some pa- I've seen patients in my clinic having cluster headache, and it is very different in appearance. I mean, some people will actually hit their head because it, it feels better. Um, and they're just so restless and agitated um, as compared to somebody with migraine where they just want to lay down and, and feel better. Um, you know, and another name for cluster headache is actually suicide headache because there are people that have had so much pain. I mean, it's yeah. 10 out of 10 pain. Um, there are, you know, we always talk about this as a way to understand the quality of a cluster headache is there are three things that can cause 10 out of 10 pain. I'm sure there are more than that. But um, childbirth, um, a kidney stone, and cluster headache. And so mm-hmm. it is just a very different. Um, um, there, It is associated with um, often the, yes. um, it's a young man that's smoking mm-hmm. um, yeah. or drank the night before. And then they come to the ER with this 10 out of 10 headache. Um, yeah. What's interesting about it, as as you know, is that the best treatment for it is actually pure oxygen. It's fascinating how different they are and how important it is for people to know that the treatments are uh, also very, very different. Um, you expanded a little bit on that importance category. I don't know if it is a category, but a different variation of headache, which is medication overuse. And we see that quite often in clinic. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, medication overuse is essentially seen in people who take way too many over-the-counter medication and also some tryptans. 
And so taking too many medication causes more headaches, right? I mean, yes. it doesn't make any sense when, when you look at it, uh, you know, as a layperson, like, how is it possible for me to have more headaches if I'm taking more pain medication? How's, how, how does right. that happen? Right, right. That's a big question. And, and actually, I, I don't entirely understand the, um, the pathophysiology behind it. I do know that it makes it harder to treat headaches with preventative therapy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interestingly. So, so, you know, I think this is kind of a good segue into preventative versus abortive uh, headaches, headache yeah, therapy, if you, if you don't mind. Um, so if you're having more than four headache days per month or migraine per month, um, or I, I, I digress, just headaches per month, um, or you're having headaches that are very debilitating, even twice a month, then you probably should be on a preventative medication. And those are not treatments that are going to give you medication overuse. Again, like as you're, as you're saying here, that it's, it's really the acute medications, like these over-the-counter medications, triptans, opioids, um, uh, Fioracet is actually, um, um, or butalbital is, is notorious for it. Um, what we do see, you know, kind of is that sometimes if you're taking a medication every day, like ibuprofen or, mm -hmm. um, um, fewer set, then when you stop taking it, you almost get like a withdrawal. Yeah. Right. So it's a medication withdrawal. It's just like, you know, about caffeine withdrawal. It's the same things. You, you take it every day. And then when you stop taking it, um, you get a headache. Yeah. And, and with these withdrawals or these overuse phenomena, it's almost like a baseline reset. It's a baseline yeah. reset phenomenon that's the threshold is lower. So it, it takes much less to create that, uh, that phenomenon. And that's, it has to do mostly with, with the um, 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 uh, receptors. I mean, now we know that I'm going to get into that a little bit with, with, uh, with the migraines. We have many different kinds of migraines, right? So we, we, we learned so much. I, I always get irked. Maybe I'm a little bit, little defensive as a neurologist when they say, oh, we don't know. I, I mean, it is unbelievable. Well, the statement how often, that we don't know much about. Yeah, it, it's like, know, like a non sequitur. It's just, yeah, just to stop the conversation, they say, oh, but we don't know much about the brain. Well, we know a lot more than you think we know about, about the brain. And, and as far as, let's just take one thing, as far as migraine is concerned, we know quite a bit as far as mechanistics, as far as, you know, these uh, channels and, and abnormal channels that, that are the causative and even the genetic patterns behind those channels and channelopathies, let's say, that, that we've learned quite a bit about, haven't we? Yes. So I, I feel, are you, are you talking now about hemiplegic migraine when you're talking about yes, channelopathies? Yes, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, this is, this is, I'm, it's, this is my excitement about the field. You know what? I'm, 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 I'm I, I should get a little, the, the scombobulate with me I jumping, and jumping no, about, no. but I get excited <laughs> because I remember Chelsea. One of the things I remember about Chelsea is occipital headaches. And yeah. she was ready to, with those injections. She was <laughs> <laughs> I still love doing them. I know. I, I never got to, to be very good at it, but it's mechanistic. This is what we're talking about is understanding if something needs to be treated a priori so that we can lower it or raise the threshold so that it's less Absolutely. likely to happen. And others that are abortive that we can stop. And we've, we've learned so much about both of those. And the, the importance of this is that for people who have headaches, they don't have to live with it. If one doctor doesn't know what to do with it, and usually generalists or primary care physicians, they might not know. And there's this is not a negative statement about that because knowledge has grown so much. 
go to specialists like Chelsea and USC and other places that know so much about both abortive and and uh, preventative and uh, phenomena. Yeah. So yeah, I would love to hear a little more about that um, uh, prodrome that you said that people who have more than two severe headaches a month or four uh, a month that they should be on a medication, right? Yeah, so when I said two, I'm thinking of really severe debilitating, like hemiplegic migraine. Yeah. People with hemiplegic migraine should be on a preventative. That yes. is a very, so hemiplegic migraine, you know, for those who don't know, um, is where you basically look like you have a stroke. Yeah. Um, you have significant weakness from your migraine and it does run in families. There's a very strong genetic component. Um, and yes, it, it it is a channelopathy. There are, um, there are three known, um, you know, ions uh, that, that are involved. There's the CACNA1A, um, uh, which is the, the familial hemiplegic migraine one. Um, and then there's, you know, ATP1A2. Um, and then there's another one, there's a sodium channel, um, uh, SCN. Um, and th they found that people with fam familial hemiplegic uh, migraine, when they do the genetic testing, that they do have, you know, one of these ionopathies. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, those patients really should be on a preventative therapy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so wonderful that, uh, you know, if like Dean was saying earlier, uh, we now know the different mechanism of actions and what happens. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, the treatments that are, the newer treatments that are coming out are very, very specific, right? I mean, yes. they're actually medications that um, attack or focus on a particular ion or a channel or a mechanism and or nerve or nerve uh, and depending on what kind of treatments people uh get they actually get a lot of relief from from their conditions too uh, coming back to the concept of the two types of therapies you know abortive therapy and preventive therapy um people tend to get very uh concerned about being on a medication on a mm -hmm. daily basis and chelsea you know this very well and the kind of conversations we have with people who need preventive therapy is very different from here's a couple of furosets and I'll see you in a couple of weeks, right? They just take the medication and when they feel better, they're like, oh, it's gone, but then it comes back, right? So preventive is very important, but people are very scared of taking medications. What has your experience been? So there's a couple of different things there. So one is, is that some prevention can be done with a couple of different vitamins, right? So mm -hmm. There is magnesium that we found to be really helpful in prevention and riboflavin, um, which is vitamin B2, we found to be helpful for prevention. And I found that people that are hesitant to take a daily medication, I can get them to start there, right? I can get them to start with, with, with some supplements, right? And we do actually have some pretty decent evidence for both magnesium and for, and for riboflavin. Um, what level B uh, was... Right. level B evidence. Um, unfortunately, they're, they're supplements, so they're not regulated, you know, by the FDA, un unfortunately. Um, but a lot of people are hesitant to take oral medications for headaches. And that is because there are no, well, there are some new medications that um, are specifically made for migraine. But the other medications that most insurance companies require you take before you can take um, some of these newer medications 
are not really migraine specific. They're things like oh. beta blockers, right? Which yes. can make you fatigue, can slow your heart rate. Um, you know, for some people with asthma, that's scary for them. Um, and then also there's anti-epileptic medications. So you have, yeah. you know, topiramate, which can cause word finding difficulty. So that's very scary. My, my college students, my medical students are always scared to take topiramate. Um, there's other anti-epileptics that we found to be useful, like one called zanisamide, which is related to topiramate, we found to be helpful with, with less side effects. Um, we found things like lamotrigine that occasionally can be helpful, um, not as not as strong um, as topiramate or zanisamide. And then a medication that we prescribe for uh, migraine often is is in the tricyclic antidepressant category. And so you hear some patients say things like, I'm not depressed, and, and yeah. why are you giving me this medication? And so uh -huh. the reality is, is that people don't really prescribe that medication as much for, for psychological reasons anymore. They often prescribe it for pain control yeah. and, and for insomnia, which is often concurrent um, with, with migraine. Um, so those are some, some options, right? But people are really scared of these medications because they have a lot of side effects, they, yeah. Or they have they, the, the, the potential for a lot of side effects. So one thing I do, and you know, for people that are listening that that do treat headache patients, is I start very low and go slow. I start people at a pediatric dose. So I'm going to start you on nortriptyline or amitriptyline. Let's start at ten. Oh, you're not comfortable yeah. with that? Let's start at five, and let's uh -huh. go really slow and just see how you tolerate it. You don't tolerate it? Let's stop. It's all about meeting the patient at a level where they feel comfortable, right? And then also integrating other. Um, forms of prevention that aren't medicinal, right? You can do things like, I am a big fan of getting people in occupational therapy. We have an excellent program at Keck where we do lifestyle redesign, um, getting people into physical therapy. Um, you know, TMJ is a, often um, a comorbid condition, having people work on learning how to relax their jaw. Um, as you know, there's the trigeminocervical uh, complex that's involved in migraine, getting people to learn how to strengthen different parts of their neck and not using their traps as much can be really helpful. Uh -huh. You know, I'm just a big fan of trying to integrate other modalities that are non-medicinal, particularly for my patients or for all of my patients, really. But, but for those patients that are hesitant to take a daily medication, I think we need to consider other options and really meet patients where they're at. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's so awesome to hear that because usually it's it's brushed off and kind of ignored. I mean, of course, we try to be evidence-based, but I think you have to look at the totality of what people can do. And I'm really happy that you actually touched on that. Um, some of the other uh, comorbid conditions that also exist in people with headaches need to be addressed as well. And I know that, you know, um, uh, we're, we're going to talk about that, but but think like, People living with sleep apnea, you know, if they oh, have yes. sleep apnea and if they don't do anything about it, forget about your headaches getting better. I mean, that's yes. such a huge reason why people have headaches, mm -hmm. isn't that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if somebody tells me, you know, you were asking earlier about, you know, what are some things you ask somebody when they're, when, when you're meeting them for the first time, um, getting a headache history is, do you snore? Yeah. You know, do you snore? Do you wake up? Are you tired during the day? I mean, that can be helpful or it cannot be helpful. Um, but are you waking up with a headache? And is it getting better as the day goes on? That's a sign that sleep apnea is probably contributing. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, in general, speaking about sleep, I mean, you and I were talking about sleep with Neuro Academy yesterday. 
just having a good night's sleep or implementing sleep hygiene can also help with uh, managing uh, headaches, especially in people who have, uh, you know, sensitivity to a particular type of uh, lifestyle factor. Um, so, so talking about lifestyle factors, you know, or, or triggers, um, in your experience as a headache specialist, what are some of the most common triggers for migraines in, in people? So this is, this is a good question, and it's also a complicated question, believe it or not. So I've always heard things like chocolate's a trigger, right? Or, you know, you hear yeah. that. It's um, chocolate's a trigger for me. Or um, you do hear some other things like sleep's a trigger. Poor sleep is a trigger for me. Stress is a trigger for me. Um, um, the weather changing. So... Yeah or flashing lights using the computer. So where it gets difficult is that some, some things that we think are triggers are not actually triggers, but that we're already in that pre-monitory or prodromal phase and we're more sensitive, mm. right? So migraine is also sensory disturbances. We're, we're more sensitive to things, right? So, um, so as it turns out, chocolate is probably not a trigger. It's more likely that we're craving different foods when we're in that premonitory state. That's fascinating. I, I don't think I actually, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've read about it, but I, don't, I, I, I had completely forgotten about that. Um, so that kind of reduces the, those like, you know, very simplistic lists that are shared on Google. To be honest, triggers. Yeah. yeah, I read quite a bit. This is a fascinating thing. It's a temporal thing, right? Where you are in that temporal relationship can completely change your perspective. And we miss that. I mean, that's the beauty of science. Our, we have, we take, I'm not going to make a philosophical concept and you know my, the rounds I used to, uh, but, I'll, I'll, but we overstate our ability to, tr know, tr to truly know what's happening around us. Yeah. And reality is in, in our ability to assess data and information, we miss so much. And this is the perfect example of that. Yeah. Where we thought that it was chocolate, but it was actually our craving increased during that time. Or the fact that we were more sensitive during the pre-drawn time yeah. that, uh, that uh, made that relationship. So, so by, that, by that measure, you know, anything could be a trigger in that phase, right? Like salty food or yes. dump food or alcohol for that matter. All of that yes. could be a trigger. So what, is it, what, what do we know as far as the true trigger? Is why yeah, this is where it's difficult, right? So, and, and I, I read, you know, I really got familiar with, with, with some of the literature just to make sure I was, you know, fresh for this. Um, and so it, it is difficult because we think that stress, stress is the number one, right? People yeah. report stress being the number one trigger. And of course there's, as we discussed earlier, there's the hormonal component. That is definitely a trigger, right? Other thing that you have to think about, you know, we were talking about earlier about like mood, well, mood changes, cognitive clouding. These are things that happen during the, the prodromal phase, right? So is it possible that during that prodromal phase, we're also more sensitive to stress, mm. right? So these are, you know, you want to get philosophical with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's where it gets, it gets challenging, right? Is it just that we are more sensitive? It's a sensory disturbance disorder, right? So yeah. is it just that we're more sensitive to stress during that period of time? Um, is our anxiety heightened? And so we're more response, um, more susceptible to stress. And is that- and we're more aware. And we're, we're more, more aware. aware of stress. I mean, to be honest, I mean, your, your headaches, you're feeling this, uh, this difference, this delta, this uh, change in state. That change in state ma bring, makes you aware of yourself. And what's the main thing that you become aware of? Stress. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. This is uh, quite 
remarkable I, piece of information. I, 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 I love this very much. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's, since we're talking about food and, you know, <laughs> and stuff, I yes. think uh, let's, let's dig a little deeper. Um, um, Chelsea and I used to have conversations uh, about food. About well, food, yeah. I mean, we both love food, but we also were kind of, you know, we have more tolerance for all the misinformation yeah. um, on yeah. the internet and people saying this dietary pattern is, you know, good for prevention of migraines and headache. And we didn't dive into it. Like, what do we know about the the relationship between diet and headache? I'm going to say headaches instead of migraines uh, because, yeah. you know, I just want you to kind of tell us if there's any relationship between any different types of headaches and diet. So I, I also, this this kind of is a good, this also is a good segue from the last um, topic because missing meals can be a trigger, right? But, you know, again, like you want to get philosophical with it. Like, are you missing meals because you're having anorexia related to the, you know, pre it, It's very confusing. But we do have, you know, I do have a number of patients that when they miss meals, they are more apt to get to get headache again because of homeostasis. We've talked about this. It's it's the the my the the brain likes to be stable. Okay, yeah. um, <clears throat> but in terms of of diet, there isn't a great deal of good research, high quality research when it comes to diet and migraine. Anecdotally, you hear a lot, right? Um, what we do know is that caffeine um, withdrawal. Uh, you know, so if you're, you need to have consistent caffeine intake, we do have evidence for that, right? And we also have um, some data that MSG, um, <laughs> you know, could make headaches worse. Um, but but in reality, we don't have any really good literature on on diets and 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 headache control. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Thank you for saying that. I know that as an indirect measure, if diet is used for, say, for example. Uh, improving blood pressure or lowering cholesterol or addressing metabolic issues. Say, for example, somebody's overweight and they change their dietary pattern, they get better, their headaches get better. Or their sleep gets better. Yes, that's true. I'm glad you brought that up because, for example, I brought up earlier increased intracranial pressure as a, a, you know, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, um, which, you know, is often comorbid with with migraine. Um, We do know that weight loss uh, leads to better control of IH, and also people tend to have fewer headaches with that, right? So I'm, I'm really glad that you that you brought that up. Um, and there are certain subgroups of patients that that probably do better with different dietary patterns, right? So there is a condition that we I don't know if you heard of this called mast cell activation syndrome. Have you heard of this condition before? Yeah. Yeah. So we see a number of patients in our clinic with mast cell activation syndrome because we have two allergists uh, at Keck that specialize in it. Um, and so those patients are very sensitive to histamine. And there are foods that are higher in histamine. And so I have had patients that have, you know, again, like there isn't a lot of data. We really need to write these things up, right? But but we found that that eating foods that are that are, you know, not eating foods with as much histamine, which unfortunately includes some very good foods, right? Like um, um, can actually help some of those those patients, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really just such a selective subgroup. And so there is a lot of, um, you know, misinformation out there like, oh, the ketogenic diet is helpful for headaches. And, and we, we just don't know. We just don't yeah. know. Talk to us a little bit about caffeine and headaches, because caffeine can actually be used as an abortive therapy for headaches at times. 
but it's also something that can bring on headaches. Again, it's like the complexity thing. So for people who are used to drinking coffee, if they let go of it, they get withdrawal headaches. But then in the emergency, caffeine can actually be used as an abortive therapy too, right? Talk to us about this. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, um, yes, that this is, this is true. And I've actually found that, that, you know, and we've talked about this before, um, at our at our clinic, that some patients are actually more susceptible to caffeine in in increasing some of their symptomatology, right? So there is, uh, you were asking about different kinds of migraine earlier. So there is a class of migraine called vestibular migraine, and those patients do not do very well with 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 caffeine, um, uh, as compared to just a regular migraine patient. I think you have to, first of all, yes, you, if you're going to do caffeine, you have to do it daily. You can't mm-hmm. just I've had um, some college students that are like, well, I drink caffeine during the week and then I get headaches on the weekend. I don't understand. It's, you didn't have your coffee over the weekend, yeah. right? So it, it is confusing, um, um, but it's, you know, I, I think it's important to know that for some people it's a useful treatment and for, for others it can be a trigger. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a, I had a patient who was a, I think, I think he was either a PhD or a master's student, I forget, and he would say, you know, whenever I go to the library, I get headaches. And it's like the fifth floor, I go there and I immediately get a headache. And uh, when I'm at home, I'm, I'm fine. And we realized, like, this is, this is a different aspect of it. And we realized that whenever he would go to the library during the week, he, he never used to wear his glasses. His glasses were for something, you know, for something to use at home only. He would put on his glasses during the weekend, but when he was actually reading material, he would take it off. And so we realized it was his vision. Wow. And so the pattern that kind of, you know, he kept on hating that place. He had PTSD with that library, that floor. <laughs> and now it was actually his eyes. And, yeah. you know, so it's so important to actually have a, uh, almost like an, your investigation hat on to find out relationship between factors. I, I mean, these little nuances yeah. of life that we have to become aware of. So talking about treatments, um, there are some really satisfying treatments. And I, I, part of the, uh, is that when I saw you with your uh, in, uh, you know, injections and for the occipital ones, though, there are some, some really uh, low-hanging fruits when it comes to as far as treatment of headaches, right? Some of the things as far as tension headaches, uh, myself, I had some, I wouldn't call it headaches, but I had significant pain and some physical therapy around my neck were actually completely alleviated that. But people who have occipital and some of the other ones that are easily treated, let's start with there. And then also the more advanced or treatment of migraines and what that looks like. But as far as the regular headaches that are easily treatable, what do you usually see and what, how, what do you do about them? So I don't get to see a lot of easily treatable headaches. And no, my, not at USC. Uh, no. Not at USC. I, I see they some. Don't help you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I would love to see some easily treatable headaches. No, I, I love complicated patients. That's why I do what I do. Um, but so the what you're talking about with the nerve block, right, that's for occipital neuralgia, exactly. um, which is um, where you have, you know, irritation of the occipital nerve um, at the base of the skull. Um, and you can treat that you know, one of the diagnostic criteria is being able to treat it with what we call an occipital nerve block, where we use some, you know, lidocaine or bupivacaine, which are, you know, um, numbing medications and, and mix it with, with some steroid. Or for some people that don't want steroid, they don't, they don't have to get it. And then you target um, the, the, the greater occipital nerve and for others, the lesser occipital nerve, and it should provide relief, right? Mm-hmm. And what we found is that 
a good portion of, of migraine patients um, also suffer from occipital neuralgia. And a, a good amount of people with migraine also respond well to those nerve blocks. Of course, um, I won't get into it too much, but insurance companies really like to deny that procedure, saying it's investigational. Um, but it can be very it can be very useful because the occipital nerve does play a role in in migraine. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about um, uh, what uh, Botox? Because I love Botox. Yeah, <laughs> I love Botox. The the yeah. we have such good data on Botox, yeah. and so many of my patients. You know, you were talking about earlier are afraid to take medications. Don't get me wrong; I have plenty of patients that are afraid of needles. Uh, yeah. I I do, um, but it's so great for some of my patients that can't that can't tolerate medications or they already have significant polypharmacy. Um, you know, we can go, we can do so much with Botox and they only have to come in once every three months, right? So there's mm-hmm. a good, good chance that they'll be able to adhere to it. The data is good. Um, and uh, it, it really can target. Um, we have patients with, with headaches that, that develop something called allodynia, um, you know, where it's like sensitivity to the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, uh, transmitted by these fibers called C fibers, um, C pain fibers, and Botox targets those. We, the yeah. the data that we have uh, uh, says that it does target the C fibers, um, and it's just a great it's a great therapy. Unfortunately, most insurance companies want you to try and fail two of those oral medications we mentioned earlier yeah. um, before trying before That's trying right. Botox. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of these newer medications that are out, the abortive therapies, um, and, and, and there are multiple different names. Some of, some of them are injectable, some of them are oral, and they're amazing. I mean, they, they really, yeah. really work very well for a lot of patients. They do, and I, I, I love them. They're, they're called calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonists. And, and more are coming in the market. You might have heard of the, the latest one, um, Zavegipant, which is going to be a nasal spray, uh, which is very exciting, especially because we were talking about migraine-induced gastroparesis earlier. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great for those patients that can't take something orally. Um, so for in terms of prevention with the calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonists, we call them CGRP, um, th- there is a class of monoclonal antibodies. So there's three injectables that you can do. Um, one targets the receptor and, and uh, two of which target the ligand. One of, um, um, you know, the, overall they're very well tolerated. The one that targets the receptor, um, arenumab, um, that one does have, you know, some increased rate of constipation, um, sometimes people will have increased rate of upper respiratory infections. Um, um, or if you have hypertension, they're finding that some people do have their hypertension becomes a little bit more difficult to control with, with that um, medication. But what's so nice about it um, with any of the monoclonal antibodies is that you have to inject it once a month and you're done. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and one of them, uh, you can inject three three times in, in, on one day, and, and you only have to inject once every three months if, if you find that that works well for you. Yeah. And, and how effective are they? They're very effective. Um, it, it seems right now it looks like almost comparable to Botox. Wow. They're extremely wow. effective. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. The only time I'm a little bit hesitant to prescribe that, those particular medications is when it's somebody that's planning on getting pregnant because mm-hmm. it has a really long half-life. We don't, we don't know 
enough yet to know to say this is safe, even though we have had some you know case reports of of people that that didn't want to give up their CGRP antagonist during pregnancy and and some of the, the you know some of what we have is is that the babies are okay. For for me, that's a risk I'm not really willing to take right now. Okay. Um. So so. You know, just like similar to like something like valproic acid or topiramate, I I I'm a little hesitant if a if a woman's trying to get pregnant to prescribe that medication, those yeah. medications I mean, right now. Um, there also is a CGRP antagonist uh, infusion that you can do once every three months called eptinizumab. That is, and well, we're seeing really great results with that. Um, and then there is an oral. It's called uh, the oral CGRP antagonists are called G pants, um, and so one of them, uh, Remegipant, um, can be used both as an abortive medication or for prevention. Yeah. It, the data for that is not as as good as with the um, injectable monoclonal antibodies, but but we are finding that that people are responding well to it. Um, and then there is another oral medication that you can use for prevention called atojapant. And and those the orals I'm, a, I'm I am more comfortable prescribing a woman of childbearing age because the half life yeah. is shorter. You can find out you're pregnant and you yeah. can just stop. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but we are seeing really good evidence um, with the CGRP antagonist, and it's just it's very exciting time and, and headache. Yeah. It really is. It is. And, uh, it is. They didn't exist a couple of years ago, and then suddenly you have so many um, that that works uh, really well. Um, what do you see? What do you see in the future, right? Yeah. Like as far as medications are concerned. And real quick before we go on to that, I have to tell you that one of them, um, the fremenizumab, uh, is actually also approved for for cluster headache. So oh, you yeah. just give a higher dose of it because we know that CGRP has a role in cluster headache as well. Amazing. Fantastic. I yeah. mean, we've, we've evolved so much. I remember my uncle who was a surgeon who told us stories of, uh, well, it's a, it's a little graphic, but uh, before doing a cardiothoracic surgery, he would have uh, ergots mm -hmm. uh, inserted into the suppositories. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and doing surgeries because he had to live with migraines all his life. And I remember how terrible that was. I remember uh, my mom's migraines. I mean, growing up, we knew when my mom would yeah. have migraines, she would lock herself up for a couple of days. And we wouldn't see her because it was so bad that my dad had to actually inject her with, you know, whatever medication back. I think it probably must have been ergots and some tranquilizers. And she would just sleep it off. It yeah. was just debilitating. And, and those were powerful drugs with potential side effects. I mean, significant side effects. And now we're much more targeted and much more specific. And um, uh, we have the abortive, we have the preventive. Um, and, and it's quite optimistic. And you're, like you said, we, it's a very exciting time for headaches and for most diseases, but especially headaches. Yeah. So having said that, um, where do you see this going in the next few years? Yes, we're not going to bring AI and, you know, all this yeah. world of, uh, knows, uh machine learning, affecting everything. discovering, uh, all, all, you know, finding cures for everything. But before that happens, where do you see this uh, research going forward? Oh my gosh. It, you know, it really threw me for a loop when the when the when the new intranasal spray came out, and I just thought, how come I didn't think of that? Right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it just makes perfect sense to me. Um, you know, they're they're coming out with even more devices. We didn't even touch upon the devices. I think we'll we'll see more with with that. Right? Um, 
Um, and I think, um, you know, hopefully, you know, we have some good data coming out that using both the CGRP antagonists um, with Botox is very useful um, because they target different um, different fibers in the peripheral system. Um, there are yeah. some different targets that they're working on. Um, uh, pituitary adenylate cyclase, um, they're, they're working on that. Just, that's another, you know, they've seen that's another um, uh, uh, inflammatory cell that, that goes up in, in migraine that they're working as a, as a target. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's just a lot to come. And, and yeah. fortunately, you know, and, and we touched a little bit on the pathophysiology, but, you know, as I was kind of refreshing myself for our talk, there still is a lot to learn. There still yeah. is a lot to learn because there are patients that are not responding to the CGRP antagonists. And the question is why? We, we have yeah. data that, that CGRP goes up, uh, you know, when somebody's having a migraine. So why aren't people responding to that? And, I, and I'm hoping that maybe with more time, we'll find out, like, you, we, we, can, we can kind of piece out who will be more responsive to different therapies. And, right. you know, in yeah. the meantime, just trying to utilize, you know, kind of a multidisciplinary approach and, and, uh, and, and, and targeting it from a variety of different angles is, is, what we have, is what we have right now and probably the best thing we have right now. Yeah. yeah. And, and with regards to lifestyle, mm-hmm. which is what we focus on at prevention as far as lifestyle is concerned, although there's not great data and we want to make sure that we don't um, support, um, uh, you know, anecdotes and things of that nature, but there's definitely indirect mechanistic phenomena. If you lower the blood pressure through lifestyle, if you lower cholesterol, if you uh, sleep better, you reduce stress. Uh, you know, all of these things have profound effect on prevalence, incidence, uh, intensity of these headaches, including migraines. So lifestyle definitely has an indirect phenomenon mechanism that, that influences all of this. Absolutely. 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 And, and we see, you know, we see so much of that at USC because we have such a strong occupational therapy program um, with, with lifestyle redesign. One of the things that they teach, which I think is so important and we all should learn it, is pacing learning how to pace ourselves, mm-hmm. taking enough breaks. Um, we, you know, we are so on the, the screen so much, right? Especially now, like since, since COVID, we were before, but now since COVID, it's, it's, it's been, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on the screens and learning how to manage that. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about post-concussive patients. They're very susceptible mm-hmm. to different kinds of lights and different kinds of environmental input. And learning how to minimize those things, even simple changes can make a difference, right? That's sleep right. is sleep is very important for mood and managing stress, right? So, so even though you know, I I, I kind of muddied the water by saying like, are are we more susceptible because of because of where we are in our migraine, or is it a trigger? It doesn't mean that we can't make some changes to mm-hmm. to help manage our pain. Right. Agreed. Agreed. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise in a subject that is so common and so it it was needed. to Absolutely. We'll have many other conversations in the future with specific things, with something new coming up. And, you know, I think each of these headaches could in itself be a podcast. Oh, absolutely. The the, the autonomic uh, phenomenon. And uh, I mean, all of them are so exciting. I, uh, and, and I think, you know, like you said, 
each of them can have a their own topic. And it's not just about a headache. Yeah. It's about millions of people, like you said, one billion people suffering from migraines. One billion? Yes, one billion in the world. That's just remarkable. That's, that's, that's yeah. so, one point these one are, billion. I mean, you can't discount the point one there. That's, 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 no, that's no, there's a hundred million people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. 1.1 billion people from suffering. These are individual stories, individual times lost. Uh, and, and we see it in our own family. So thank you so much. I think this is so helpful for people to know what these things are, what to do about them, uh, when it's, there's something urgent that they need to address immediately. And, and the fact that there is a lot that can be done to, uh, to alleviate these, these pains. Absolutely, absolutely. There's and there's so much that we didn't even, we didn't even scratch the surface on and, oh, and no. you know, um, I'm just, I was such a privilege to be here and, and thank you so much for having me. Same it's here. It's a privilege Same of here. ours. Thank you so much. Thank you.